Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Benjamin Barton, who's a University of Tennessee law professor and the author of the fascinating new book, The Credentialed Court, Inside the Cloistered Elite World of American Justice. The book, which is set to be released in the coming weeks, provides a timely and important analysis of the growing convergence in the backgrounds and experiences of U.S. Supreme Court justices and its consequences at a time when so much of the popular discourse is about their differences. Congratulations on the book, Professor Barton, and thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Oh no, thank you for having me, I'm thrilled. Your description of today's Supreme Court is as, quote, radically similar, which would probably surprise a lot of readers. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's super funny. People think that because there's a conservative liberal split, there's like a real like radical difference between these folks. And in fact, from the day these guys and gals entered college, there are very, very few Americans who have had more similar experiences than these nine people. The bulk of them went to Ivy League colleges or Stanford for undergrad. All of them, except for one, went to Harvard or Yale for law school. Six of them clerked on the Supreme Court, which is the hardest job to get out of law school. Five of them spent significant time teaching in, in American law schools. They all have this like hyper elite, meristocratic, depending on how you define merit, um, experience where they've gone through a series of exceedingly narrow hoops. I mean, one thing I want to make clear is it's not easy to get these jobs. That being said, they have all jumped through the same hoops, like they've followed the same path to this point in their lives where they find themselves on the court. When do you think the courts started to converge in terms of backgrounds and experiences? And what were the factors behind this trend? Oh, I love this question. Part of it is the rise in salience in the Supreme Court. So basically, in the 50s, 1950s, and the 1940s and 1930s, maybe more like in the 40s and 50s, it was kind of a backwater. There wasn't much going on. And so presidents had a lot more leeway to appoint people to the court. And in fact, I, I studied the backgrounds of all 115 Supreme Court justices. And there's some people that are just head scratchers, where it's literally like, how did this person, like, <laughs> like literally there's nine of these people and this is the guy who made it up? In the 70s, and then you know, starting with Nixon, it got to be a lot, you know, and, and uh, Roe versus Wade really raised the salience of it. The, the revolution in the 60s, the Warren Court in the U.S. raised the salience of it. So people really started to pay attention. So all of a sudden, you had these battles over confirmation. And so one of the things that presidents tried to do was to kind of grease the skids. And one way to do that was to take background off the plate. 
Like, don't appoint anybody who's got a controversial background. So don't appoint a former politician. Don't appoint a lawyer who's done a bunch of controversial stuff. Just kind of appoint these vanilla people who have been on the Court of Appeals already. And then insofar as you care that when they're appointed, they're going to do exactly what you want them to do. You think having them in the Court of Appeals helps because you've seen their record. And so people feel more comfortable with this uniformity of background. And and I mean, like one of the things I put on the book is the great irony of it. Donald Trump, um, whether you like him or not, it's a fact. He was elected on the back of attacking elites. Like that, if that wasn't the, the number one thing that he pointed to, it was like on the top five. And yet when he was president, he just appointed the most elite possible guys, literally, you know, basically indistinguishable from the people that Obama had appointed. So at least in that one area, he went the opposite direction. American enterprise scholar Yuval Levin recently observed on a podcast that a broader sociological trend along these lines. He said, quote, there is now an elite in American life in a way that there hasn't always been. In some ways, the left-right debate has been recast as an up-down debate. But of course, the right has its own elites and they went to the same schools and they're in some ways in the same bubbles. So that the left-right is really among elites. That's what our politics is ultimately about. Do you think what's happening on the courts is part of a broader sociological trend towards hyper-credentialization in American life? Absolutely. And again, your mileage will vary. I've presented this book all over the country and actually in in, in other countries, including Canada. Um, And you'll get a bunch of people who are like, this sounds like meritocracy in action. Awesome. Really? Like, you're going to complain? We we have the smartest, best credentialed people who are most qualified. And again, it depends what you mean by qualified for the court. What could be wrong with that? Um, Well, the problem is that your life experiences affect how you approach your job and how you go forward with it. And uh, there's been a graduate of Harvard Law School on the Supreme Court from the beginning. There's always been at least one. And so I'm not saying there should be none. I'm just saying there's no reason why all nine of them should have the same background experiences. But yeah, no, I think it's it's a very boiled down, intense version of the debate over meritocracy. Now, one of the things that's super interesting when you do the research of all 115 Supreme Court justices it's always been a meritocracy. It just depends what you mean by merit. Mm. Um, they used to appoint people who had significant, really, some of them just incredible life experiences before they got on the court. One of the tests, and it's a Sandy Levinson is a law professor at Texas. His test on this is whether you would have earned a biography before you got on the court. And he puts has it as a hit by a bus on the way to the court. So, you know, Thurgood Marshall is a classic example. But John Marshall is another example of this, uh, let alone John Jay, the very first Supreme Court. I mean, these people had done so much before they got on the court. They were famous, well-known, well-established folks before they got on there. And on the current court, I mean, it's just harder. You know, they're just these folks have done a lot. They've accomplished a lot, but they haven't had these broad life experiences that people used to bring to the court. Well, let me uh, take you up on that, Professor Barton. What do you think the biggest consequence is of this increase of the increasingly shared backgrounds and experiences in the court? And maybe put differently, how do you think a more diverse set of backgrounds and experiences might change the cases the court takes on and the decisions that it makes? Yeah. So, I mean, believe me, a lot of folks are like, yeah, and? Like, oh, wait, wait, so hold on. So tell me if there were different backgrounds, would we have an answer on abortion? If we had different backgrounds, would, we, would, would things be held differently? And I just want to be clear. 
I, this book is a nonpartisan book, meaning I don't think that you should, like, if you're a right-wing person, it's not going to thrill you. If you're a left-wing person, it's not going to thrill you. You're not going to get decisions that more closely associate with your political desires. But here's what I think you would get. What this court is sorely lacking, sorely lacking, is what Aristotle called practical wisdom. And Aristotle said practical wisdom only comes from life experience. In a super humorous quote, he describes practical wisdom as the opposite of mere cleverness. And it's my opinion that this court is packed with mere cleverness on the left and on the right. There's a similar group of justices who had a really, really, really hard time getting along. And it's the group of justices that were in power at the end of the 40s and into the 50s. And there's a great book about this uh, called Scorpions that describes how miserably these people got along. They were almost all appointed by the same president, FDR. They were almost all Democrats. They basically agreed politically, and yet they couldn't get along. They had a whole bunch of fractured decisions. And the reason why is, was the first court that had a majority of law professors on it. And that's my opinion on the reason why. But you do not want to turn this court into an academic debate. You want people on there who have had life experience who are like, you know, I've got better things to do than write a sub-dissent of paragraph three, subsection D. Sure, fine. I'll just go, you know, like you need people who are going to work together on this. One of the ironies is roughly a third of the people who have served as Supreme Court justices were former politicians. And some of them really decorated politicians, including a former president of the United States, candidates for president, candidates for vice president. And we basically haven't had a high-profile politician since the 50s, since, since Earl Warren. And part of the reason why is people are like, well, well, people already think it's a political court. If we added politicians, wouldn't that be worse? And I'm like, how could it get worse? <laughs> how could it get worse? How's it working out for you? You haven't appointed a politician since Saturday O'Connor. Does it seem like we're getting along better? Does the court seem less political? In fact, if you had politicians on the court, some of these folks might help you know, bind them together. These are glue people. And these are also people who have been out and amongst regular people in the U.S. And one of the things that's hard, when it's a bless their heart situation, as we would say in Tennessee, is that these justices just haven't had much interaction with regular people. You just can't when you go to Harvard undergrad and then Harvard Law School and then clerk in the Supreme Court and then work in the White House. You just don't run across too many ordinary people. And that alone has to really color how you see all of these things. If listeners are persuaded that the deficit of practical wisdom is a problem to be solved, how can this trend be reversed? What should be done to try to bring greater intellectual and experiential diversity to the U.S. courts? Part of the hope is just sunshine being the best disinfected. So that's part of the idea. And I'll note also that I'm not, I'm not like there are other people noticing this, including Justice Scalia and the Obergefell dissent, one of his most famous dissents, that's the um, gay marriage decision in the U.S. He starts the dissent by describing the, the backgrounds of the Supreme Court justices and saying this is not a representative court to be making this decision. And in less strident terms, justices on the left have noticed that as well. Kagan and Sotomayor have both made similar comments. And Biden, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see on the Supreme Court, but he's tried. He's tried. You can see his appointments at the lower court level have a little more diversity of experience and certainly more diversity of race and gender. And I should, I should also note that the court is more diverse in terms of race and gender than it's ever been by a mile. All you have to do is look at a picture. Like, it's, it's obvious that that is a big change. And I'm not against that. That's a salutary change. But again, I don't think that should come at the 
cost of having a broader life diversity. I mean, the irony is that Sotomayor and Kagan have had, and Amy Coney Barrett, have had experiences so similar to the existing male justices. That's an important point, that diversity comes in, in different shapes and forms. And as we kind of think about the, the trade-offs and in, in trying to achieve the goal of representativeness and representation, we need to be cognizant of the, of the role for experience and, and background. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. An underlying idea in your answers in today's discussion, but in the book as well, is the backdrop of the current moment of populism. And of course, expressions of distrust in mainstream institutions, including, of course, the courts. So do you think a better representation of this idea of practical wisdom could help to mitigate some of the trust issues that Americans are expressing poll after poll with respect to the Supreme Court? Yes, I, do. I think the answer to that is yes. But again, that's an empirical question to be measured on a going forward basis. But no, I, do, I really do think that. And I, I want to note, it's not that I think that you should just pick names out of a phone book. Um, hmm. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that you should consider what these folks have done beforehand and get a mix of it. And, you know, the first 70 years of the court, they were really, really, really careful about geographic diversity, for example. And they really, really meant when, by geographic, they didn't mean like, so, so Gorsuch is nominally from Colorado, but he moved to Washington, D.C. when he was nine. And then, then the next time he basically came back to Colorado was as a 10th Circuit judge where he was there for, you know, I don't know, five, six years and then came back to the Supreme Court. He spent more time not living in Colorado than living in Colorado. Whereas you look at a guy like Byron White, so Byron White's a crazy story. So he grew up in a little town in Colorado, and he went to the University of Colorado on a merit scholarship. He finished first in his high school, and everybody in Colorado went to free to University of Colorado to finish first in their high school. He joined the football team, didn't start as a freshman, came in second in the Heisman Trophy, led the country in rushing, then got a road scholarship, and ran in the NFL and went to Yale Law School all at the same time. He did all three of these things over a period of time. He had to quit the NFL and Yale Law School because then he went into the Navy and he served in Naval Intelligence with JFK. He and JFK were, uh, like worked together in the Navy. Then he got out, finished. He's, at this point now, he's too old to play football, finishes Yale Law School, moves back to Colorado and just works as a lawyer for, I don't know, 12, 13 years, and then gets appointed back to the court by JFK. And this is an example of the way Thurgood Marshall was. This is a guy who was more famous at 20 than when he was appointed to the Supreme Court. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he was an actual Colorado, you know what I mean? And you would, and, and Justice Thomas grew up in Georgia, but again, he, he never lived in Georgia after he graduated high school. It's a little strong to, to call him a Georgian when he's in his 50 and he gets appointed to the court and he's lived the bulk of his years in, um, in Washington, D.C. But yeah, basically, you would just have more like trust is maybe I guess trust is the right thing. Like it would just be a more recognizable institution. It would be less Olympian 
in the way that it would present itself. You mentioned in an earlier answer, and it's sort of implicit throughout the book, that we've come to have uh, quite a narrow conception of merit and the meritocracy. Do you want to just unpack some uh, some of your thinking on this question and the need, both with respect to the court, but perhaps more generally, uh, to sort of reconceptualize how we, we think of merit and meritocracy and, and how we account for certain skills or experiences that are presently not captured in the world of credentialization? Oh, absolutely. I love that question. If it's going to be a qualification for the Supreme Court that you have to go to an Ivy League undergraduate institution or Stanford, that means that the race to get on the Supreme Court starts when you're 14 in ninth grade algebra. Like you just can't get a C in that class or you're not qualified to be on the Supreme Court. The good news about our version of meritocracy is it does measure something. I mean, like in statistics, we would call it internally valid. Like it actually measures something. Um, And you can tell because the same people keep doing well on it each time after time after time. But you get this really narrow skill set and a really particular type A overachiever type person who are the type of people who can keep trucking along on this path. And it's a very, very narrow, to a certain extent, it's kind of a lonely path. You know what I mean? Like if you think of the people that you knew in high school who would be qualified to go on to the next step and then the next step and the next step, these are folks who have spent a lot of time in the library. And there's something sort of like, in my opinion, so there's something likable about that. People do like tests and they do like hoops and they do like things that measure it. There's something worrisome about a society that has so many off ramps and so few on ramps. You know what I mean? Like when you do this broader version of merit, So, for example, like there are lots of folks who are senators or members of the House of Representatives or have significant governmental duties who are the types of folks who used to get on the court who don't come from these backgrounds. Joe Biden is a perfect example of this. Joe Biden was a mediocre student by his own admission, mediocre student at the University of Delaware and then went to to, um, Syracuse Law School. And he's like, I was just I was just lucky they didn't toss me out. And yet he's made it to, to where he's made it. That's a significant achievement, and it's because of things that he did later in life. And it's a similar experience for Thurgood Marshall. Lots of these folks have proven themselves, gotten their bona fides based on their later experience, things that they later achieved. Um, And you want to keep the doors open. You know what I mean? You want a version of meritocracy where it's broad enough that you're encompassing a whole lifetime of achievement. And not just a narrow series of hoops that have led you into the hardest job to get in America. It seems to me a big part of that, Professor Barton, also is creating models for young people to see different pathways or even to see themselves and their own experiences represented uh, on the court. To what extent does Justice Amy Coden Barrett's background coming from the University of Notre Dame create that kind of model, a signal to aspiring law students and and possible future jurists that there is a different path, that they don't need to follow this hyper-tracked system that you're describing? Yeah. So on the one hand, she's a pretty likable example. She's a Southerner. She grew up in outside New Orleans. So that's pretty likable. And she went to a a, a super extra awesome Tennessee college, but a non-elite college, Rhodes College. And in fact, it's humorous. There's two different justices that went to Rhodes College. um, And there's only one justice that went to Duke, 
or Vanderbilt or other schools in the South. So I consider Rhodes to be the Harvard of the South as of now. Like they went ahead and won that one. And then she did, she did go on to Notre Dame, which is not Harvard or Yale. Um, so that does set her aside from her colleagues. That being said, she finished first in her class at Notre Dame and clerked for Scalia and was one of Scalia's favorite clerks. And then from there, she went on back into academia and after following a pretty pretty fancy um, legal career. So outside of the entry to Notre Dame Law School, she's really pretty similar to the other ones. In fact, she's got a really similar career and life to Kagan. So it's interesting. Maybe just, you know, I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't ask you, um, given that in addition to this most recent book, you're someone who's uh, spent a lot of time studying the kind of ecosystem in and around the Supreme Court. We're going to see a, a number of contentious cases taken up in 2022, quite likely, including, of course, questions around abortion. How do Americans, maybe put more precisely, lower the temperature around the Supreme Court? Or is that not a, a plausible aspiration at, at this stage? Oh, I think where we're at now, that's, that, that seems implausible. Um, and some of that are, are, I mean, a lot of that are factors completely outside of the court's control. Now, in my opinion, it's somewhat within the court's control that it got so out of hand. Like, like the, the Supreme Court did become a much higher salient institution and did really drive, in particular, I mean, it's not only abortion, but this is one of those examples where that just drove people who opposed abortion completely around the bend. So that there was a significant portion of the electorate, I mean, not obviously not a majority, but like, I mean, it's maybe a majority within the Republican Party, or at least a plurality there who were like, this is the thing I care about. That's it, period. I'm done dealing with anything else. And there's no better example than Donald Trump. I mean, he literally said with his outside voice to people at rallies, you might not like me, but you have to vote for me, Supreme Court justices, period. He was like, that was his pitch. Um, and, and if you look at the exit polls, it actually was pretty successful. Um, so, so some of it is internal to the court, but a chunk of it is just the broader royal in the U.S. right now. It's just really hard to imagine that that's going to cool down, at least in the next, next few terms of the Supreme Court. They control their own docket. I mean, they could take fewer of these cases and that that would cause some tremors, but it wouldn't be the way it's going to be when these cases come down, for sure. And maybe that just brings me to my final question. You know, notwithstanding the intensity of the polarization in and around the Supreme Court, what's the reaction you're getting from people when you outline your thesis of radical similarity, which presumably for many it's such a challenge to the way that they've come to think about the court and its place in American society. Yeah, so it's super funny. The biggest group of folks who I presented this work to are other law professors and other lawyers who are super hierarchical and elitist, and just be <laughs> frank. And so they don't like what I have to say, and they frequently push back pretty regularly. I also do this weird thing where, like, if I get it, I've been invited to speak to several rotary clubs in Knoxville and in Nashville, and so I just go. I just go and, and tell the story. Um, and it is amazing. Regular folks are like, huh, I thought about that. That that makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean? They're a lot warmer and closer to this concept for sure. Well, again, uh, the, the book is The Credential Court Inside the Cloistered Elite World of American Justice. Uh, Professor Benjamin Barton, thank you for joining us today to talk a bit about the book. Congratulations on its forthcoming release and, and good luck persuading your colleagues that they, they're missing this important piece of the puzzle when it comes to understanding 
the court, its conception and its place in American society. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. 